Welcome to My Life Chassidus Applied, episode 290. We are at the beginning of the month of Tevis, the week of Pashas Vayechi, the last portion, Torah portion in this first book of Genesis of Bereshis. This week, Tuesday, will also be a sort of Betevis, which is one of the four fasts prescribed in the Torah and Torah Shabbat and Tanakh. So let's begin with that. But above all, let's begin with what the dedication of this program dedicated in honor of uh, the twin newborns, Leah Teferet, I'm sorry, Amuna Sara, and the boy who has not yet been named, children of Leah Teferet and Pesach Binyamin, and grandchildren of uh, proud grandparents Philip and Nancy Namaworth. They're born on Shabbos, the sixth night of Hanukkah, Rosh Chodesh Tevis. May Hashem bless them to grow up healthy, the Torah, mitzvahs, and gemilas chasadim. So, being that Sarah B'Tevis is this uh, Tuesday, let's begin with that, and then we'll move over to Yechvayechi, and I have a whole array of interesting and fascinating topics to discuss in this episode. So Sarah B'Tevis is, as I mentioned, the first of four Fast connected to the Beis Amigdash, the Churban Beis Amigdash. On Asura B'Tevis, the Babylonian king Nebuchadnezzar surrounded the Beis Bayis tradition, surrounded the city, the Yerushalayim, Mozart, which is a, basically he uh, surrounded the city, which was the beginning of, unfortunately, would become the end of the destruction. Months later, ultimately breached the wall of Jerusalem, and finally, um, that's on the 17th of Tammuz, which is again a fast day. And then, then finally on Tisha B'av was the actual destruction of the Beis Amigdash. This happened in the first temple. So all these three days are marked with fast days, as, uh, the, as Halacha cites it from the Psukim in Nevim, and the Rambam, of course, in Hilchas Tainius. And each of these fasts are all stages in this destruction. Now, there's an interesting thing the Rebbe brings about Asura B'Tevis, which is different than the others. We know in Tisha B'Av, with the 17th of Thomas, the 9th of Av, fall on a Shabbos, which happens, uh, the, the Shabbos is doiches, Shabbos supersedes over the fast day. If Asura B'Tevis would fall on a Shabbos, it doesn't. And that's one of the reasons the Chacham, when they created the calendar, made sure it shouldn't. But if it would fall on a Shabbos, says David Ram, it would be doiches Shabbos meaning it would, we would fast on a Shabbos like we do on Yom Kippur. We derive that from the fact that it says Be'etzim Hayyem on the 10th of Tevis, and as similar to what it says Be'etzim Hayyem on Yom Kippur. So the obvious question is, Tisha B'av seems to be the most uh, strictest fast. Actually, it's the 24 or 25-hour fast that begins the night before. Asar B'Tevis is a fast that begins in the uh, dawn or in the morning. And... Tisha B'av seems to be the biggest issue, which is the actual destruction of the temple. So why would Asura B'tevis have such power that it's more powerful than even Shabbos, to the extent like Yom Kippur? Even Tisha B'av doesn't have that. And the Rebbe, in a fascinating explanation, and as an aside, I should mention, when the Rebbe, after the heart attack that the Rebbe had in Tov Shilam Etches, Shemini Atzeres, so one of the things, many things the Rebbe added and increased in his own work and his own teaching of Torah, was one of the things was he renewed the custom of divrei kfushin. This means saying words 
of inspiration and saying words that are relevant to a fast day. So the Rebbe began, that Asara B'Tevis, that Yotav Shalom Ches, both at night and the day, he said, Tivrei Kfushin, with a mimer. So one of the things the Rebbe explained, and also in subsequent years, that the power of Asara B'Tevis is because there's two ways to see a problem. You see the problem when you finally, the full-blown symptoms of the issue begin to affect us, or you, wait, you, you look at the root of where it begins. Whatever happened on the 9th of Av, which was the destruction of the Besamid, did not begin that day. When did it begin? It began a sort of a tevis. The surrounding and the, and the, and the, the, siege, the siege of Jerusalem began months and months earlier. Some say it's even years earlier. And that was the beginning that would lead to what would happen at the end. So whenever you have a problem, you don't begin to solve the problem when the problem is already all full-blown or about to be destroyed. You want to nip it in the bud. So Asara B'tevis, had that not happened, the rest wouldn't have happened. That's on a very physical level. What's the spiritual significance? The siege of Jerusalem represents the siege of the walls that protect the city. The reason we make different takonos, chachomim make, different decrees, different stringencies, different things to be careful of, is because it says, When you see an open field, you create a fence to make sure nobody trespasses. You don't wait till they, till they come to your house or come to your direct property. You create a fence around. That's the whole idea of humrus and different stringencies. To protect that you shouldn't even come to a problem, which psychologically and emotionally is a very simple thing. You don't have to wait till there's a problem for example, the physical body also has a wall around it. And that's the, that's the skin and the outer layers, the hair, that when any type of uh, bacteria fall upon the body, that hair and the skin and the outer layers protect you from, uh, God forbid, from infection. If the body's not protected, infection can enter into the more sensitive and internal organs and creates havoc. So everything needs a wall around it whether it's a psychological war, emotional war, or physical war, or a spiritual war. That wall is meant to be like a barrier that protects from toxins and from all kinds of negative forces. So Asara B'tevis honors the protection of the outer wall. You don't have to wait, God forbid, till infection enters, which would already be 17th of Tammuz, which is the breach of the wall, and, then, and three weeks later, Tisha of the destruction of the Beis Amigdash. So you, as soon as it's besieged, you know there's an issue. And had the Jews done shuva at the time, had they corrected their ways, the siege would have been over and there would never have been a breach and would never have been ultimately the destruction. So in the case of the second temple, we talk about sinas chinam, spaceless hatred. You don't wait till the consequences begin to manifest. You nip it in the bud and you nip it in the bud. That way, the rest of it will not be like exactly in health a type of preemptive, preventive action that doesn't allow that right when you see a siege, you see a little something is already weakened, you don't wait till it escalates until it, and then it and grows into a monster. But you dip it immediately. That's a sort of betavis. And the motzer, which means that he puts samach bovel, melach bovel, samach mevel bovel is another word for besieging. Samach is an interesting word. It also means to support. Some are convened to besiege, to lean on, but it could also mean to support. And when you transform the Samach of siege to the Samach of support, that becomes the most powerful day 
in that sense. And that's why it's more powerful than Shabbos. Because it's the beginning of all the challenges, and when you fix it there, you make sure that the other issues don't even arise in the first place. Which, of course, is the healthiest approach in life, is not to wait till the city falls, and not to wait till the walls fall, and not to wait till it gets even worse. But as soon as you see some type of challenge, something that questions or some way weakens, even on a small scale, you immediately address it. It's one of the lessons of Asada Batavis in our personal lives. One of the questions that came in, which of course fits right here, is how is one supposed to spend a fast day according to Chassidus? People get very hungry, so they often try to distract themselves by watching films or going to sleep. That doesn't seem very spiritual and not what was intended. Yes, you can uh, definitely uh, say that. And, but even if it's not done something, something that is not appropriate, in general, how do you, what are you supposed to do on a fast day? So let's go back for a moment. Why do we fast in the first place? The Rambam writes in Hilchas Tainius, the laws of fasting, the reason we fast and the reason we honor these days is because when a catastrophe or any tragedy or any negative thing happens to an individual or community, it's insensitive and even cruel, achzorius he calls the word, to, to uh, be ap- apathetic and say, hey, it just happened, let's move on. So it's really a study and an exercise in introspection, in soul-searching. And one of the ways we soul-search in a serious way is we fast. We break our routine. Usually we have our routine, we eat our three meals or whatever amount of meals we eat. Here, it's meant to bring your, your attention to it. And one of the ways to bring attention is, yes, that you are looking hard inside yourself. And when you're doing that, you don't get distracted by meals or other type of activities like that. In addition, fasting is also a form of self-affliction because it's painful and depriving, but it's depriving in order to grow through it. It's not deprived just to deprive. So fasting is one of the ways. It's the same. So then let's look at what's the pr- purpose of this same. It's not just to fast in order to fast. It's in order to fast in order to make you aware, which in other words is what these days are called, as the Rebbe always emphasizes on these, in, these, in the talks he delivered on fast days, it's a Eisrotzen, Eisrotzen Hashem. It is, it's a desirable time. They say desirable time, and it's a fast day for, for negative things that happen. It's a desirable time, yes, because it's a window of opportunity. A window opens up, and one of the ways we recognize that is by paying attention, taking it seriously, including, yes, refraining from material Food, that's on the Sarabatevis. And Yom Kippur, of course, it has its own purpose, which we're not going to discuss here. So it's about introspection, and that's the way the day should be used. A day of a little more seriousness, a day of looking at the causes and the roots of our problems, as opposed to the problems themselves. How can we improve our ways? How can we mend? In the word mending, a breach. Breach didn't happen yet, but amending a besieging. The besieging of your territory, your intimate place, your home, your family, when it's under siege, it could be under siege by the internet, it could be under siege by psychological effects, it could be under siege by abuse, it could be under siege by a lack of proper behavior in the home. Just giving it as an example of how this would manifest. So this is a day to look into that. That's the way to look at it. Not to distract ourselves with doing other things, to just get over the fast. There's a reason there's a fast. The fast is meant to get your attention. And to get your attention right where it hurts, in a sense. I don't mean hurts in the sense to cause pain, but right where it affects you, where really feel, you feel it. And that's when you don't eat, you feel it. You're sure aware. So to stop right there, just with the refraining from eating, the goal is that that should wake you up to think about your life, 
where, you, where are you now? In context of the Beis HaMikdash, we all are a Osili Migdash Rishachanti Besechom. God said, build for me a temple and I will rest among you, which means Besech Kol Echad Va'achas. Within each and, and, and man and woman soul, each man, woman and child soul, there's supposed to be a Mishkan, a Migdash. So when we honor on the 10th of Tevis when that Migdash, which was in the city, and that city is besieged, we have to look at our own Migdash. What's going on with your inner temple? What forces are so-called attacking and laying siege to your inner sanctum? And what can you do about it? That's what we're supposed to be focusing on, Asara B'Tevis. And that's why we have extra, extra prayers and the other things that we are involved in. And of course, the whole goal of it is, as the Rambam concludes the laws of Tainis, This is also from the verse in Zechariah, in the prophets that talk about the fasts, that these days will ultimately be transformed. Which means to holidays and to joyous occasions. Why? Because the purpose of all these concealments, all these challenges, is not to be an end in itself. Even if we overcome all the challenges, Mashiach and Gula come, that doesn't mean this all goes away because everything has to be transformed. So even the negative, the Samach Melech Bovel, the negative becomes Samach Melech Bovel in the positive. So everything is not just, not just we go back to square one, we use the negative energy, we use the challenges to be a catalyst for growth. That's the lessons of Asada B'Tavis and how we use a, a fast day. It's also Parsha Vayechi, and Vayechi, interestingly, begins with a, a real paradox. We know that Yaakov's life was not an easy life. From pregnancy, even. He was already struggling with his twin brother, Esau. And then, of course, as they got older, to the point he had to escape, and he ran off to, uh, went off to Choron, as parents' instructions, built his family, and there he just went from the, the what they say, from the, fry, from the frying pan to the fire. And he, and he dealt with Lovan, the devious uncle of his Lovan, and then after that, he thinks he can really live in peace. Another 20 years pass, he comes back and wants to live in peace. And no, Kovtzalov Rugzeshul Yesuf. Yesuf disappears. Him thinking that Yesuf already had, was killed. And that's another 22 years. And then finally, he reconciles with Yesuf. The final years of his life, the last 17 years of the life, begin in this week's chapter by Yechi Yaakov. That's where he lived Shva Esleshana, 17 years. Yechi Yaakov Shva Esleshana in Mitzrayim. These are the best years of his life. Shva Esrishona is the gematria, says the Balaturim, of the word Tev. Tev, good, is the gematria, is the same numerical equivalent of the word of, uh, of uh, 17. So that's why, because these were his best years. As the Tzemach Tzedek to the Alter Rebbe, the best years in Mitzrayim, yes, because that's where he transformed darkness into light. Now, of course, we'd all love to live in light, and we'd all love to live in, bless, in bliss, and with happy moments. But as long as there's a golas, as long as there's suffering, as long as there's a tzimtzumarish, a concealment of the divine, tzaddikim, sense it, and they know their Aveda continues in this world to not just battle, but to transform the darkness into the light. And there was a taste of it in those 17 years. Afterwards, it would get a lot worse, after Yaakov. And Ola Shvatim passed away, of course, by Yaakov Melachadosh, the next week's chapter, a new king, either a physically new king or, or conveniently new king, forgot conveniently what happened and all the good that was done to him. But those 17 years, and you can say it's part of the preparation, was preparing 
even in Erva Sa'aretz, in a decadent land and a debased culture, that there there was Teira. Remember, Yehuda established a yeshiva in Mitzrayim and Gershon. And Yaakov is there together with his entire family. So relatively speaking, in those 17 years were the best of his years, which emphasized the same point I was talking about with the fast days. And perhaps that's the connection between Asara Betevis and Vayechi, that sometimes in the darkest things, when it's transformed, you have the greatest light, the greatest power. And that's indeed the whole purpose of creation. In the Elam Asalyeinu, this explains, as the Alter Rebbe says in Tanya, it's all Giluim in chapter 36. And therefore, it's all revelation. It's only in this world, in this lowliest of worlds, a world that, where the divine is completely concealed to the point that it's more like clippers with sitrach, not just it's concealed and it's, natu- and it's neutral, but there's actually a world filled with negative forces. Dafka there, explicitly there, we have the power to transform it. And when we do, the light, the energy that comes out of the darkness is infinitely greater than light that is just initially light. And that's the theme of, one of the themes of Vayechi. And Vayechi, Dafka Vayechi, Vayechi Yaakov lives. And we know that this chapter talks also about his passing. But the word mess, death, is not mentioned. Yaakov Avinu mess. Why? Because his children are alive, so too is he alive. Even in Mitzrayim. And that, of course, is a lesson for all generations. That when you connect to what really matters, to the divine and to the tzaddikim of a generation, to the Rebbe of a generation, even when we go through darkest moments, there's something that lives on. And that living on is in our hands to continue to perpetuate the teachings and the, and the directives and live by them in our personal lives. Which, of course, continues the theme I discussed last week on, about Hebetavus. But let us now, st- we'll, we'll stop with that on this topic and we'll move on to the next topic. But as cross-references go, obviously I've spoken about this topic more than once, so I'll refer you to episodes 95, 145, 194, 240. These all can be found at chassidahsupply.com and the website filled with an array of resources of applying chassidahs to life of many types, including, of course, all the previous episodes. You have a form there to submit an anonymous question, totally anonymous, as well as all the essays Thousands of essays that have been written in the last five years by people from all walks of life, from all backgrounds. Essays applying chassidus to life. Next question, which actually came in today, but since it's timely, I chose to read it. March against anti-Semitism. What should our attitude be to the march taking place today against anti-Semitism? What would the Rebbe's opinion be and what should our attitude be this march? When it's a march against anti-Semitism, but it's organized by UJA and the Reform Movement who invite Al Sharpton to give the keynote speech at their annual dinner. Okay, so this question can be split into several parts. First of all, what about a march in general? Let's say there was no Al Sharpton involved. So the Rebbe's attitude in these type of matters, generally speaking, when it came to, for example, Soviet Union demonstrations, the Rebbe was adamantly against it because he knew the Russia and he knew how they behaved and how they would react to these demonstrations. However, this, of course, does not go into that category. We're talking about a demonstration. So my understanding is, obviously, the Rebbe always looked for a more internal and more, uh, a more uh, the deepest way you can have impact, which means, of course, talking to officials with political connections. Now, a demonstration, if it helps, because it brings awareness and puts pressure, 
most likely, and I can't speak for the Rebbe, but if it has that benefit, great. But unfortunately, many of these demonstrations and events become showcase for people just to, uh, just to, 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 to celebrate themselves and honor themselves. And it's more of a PR uh, opportunity, a photo op. However, again, even if it may be that, but it does help create attention and awareness. So I can't, again, I'm not going to say the Rebbe would endorse every march, but in some instances, you can see a benefit to that because it's part of a whole plan, which means there's follow-up, meeting the politicians, meeting the police, meeting the law enforcers, meeting all the powers that be to do something to protect the Jewish people, especially doing to the, dealing with the recent attacks, that uh, unfortunately. So in that sense, we're not going to go with a full endorsement that yes, you must go to every march and so on, but... If a march, especially if there's a respectable presence of people attending and can't help, how could we negate that? Regardless of, as I said, the intentions. I'm just mentioning it, not because I'm throwing any aspirations on the intentions of those organizing it, but let's be realistic. We just want to keep everything in context and make sure that uh, the focus is above all on the goals and that there's a follow-up and it's part of a larger strategy. As far as uh, Al Sharpton or other such people, obviously the hypocrisy is quite obvious, and that just um, under, underscores and undermines actually the credibility of such a march. But I don't want to come out and say that a march should not be supported because they, they uh, are, are honoring Sharpton in other places, because so, no, one, no one's perfect. And therefore, if the march has an impact, yes. But if the march, again, is advancing a liberal cause or a cause that does not really benefit, it's just, again, just to be a stage, to um, have people just express themselves in order for them to be more prominent in the, in the news, that throws a lot of cold water on the whole idea. And you see I'm being not black and white on this for intentional reasons because, again, I don't want to be the one that says, no, absolutely not. If it could be a benefit, some things you can overlook. Now... If they really wanted the credibility, remember there's definitely different opinions on who should be leading such marches and whose political opinions we can respect. The best is obviously to create a consensus that it shouldn't be seen as political, shouldn't be seen as one group or another group. But I don't know how realistic that is. So I repeat and sum up again, if it's one piece of a whole puzzle that's helping get attention and helping actually change policies and increase security and increase preemptive measures including education, which of course is the long-term measure, and other measures that will help, then we have to look at it as a bigger picture instead of just one specific thing. If this is the only thing that's done, and it's only a photo op, and nothing else is done, then obviously the whole thing is really actually undermined because it's like just seen as, okay, let's all get together, make sure that we're seen on television, we're seen that we're saying something, and we're not just being quiet, but then... Obviously, who's it help if nothing follows up? That's why the pressure has to be put on both elements. I'm not going to come to a conclusion whether this march is actually part of that the type of strategy. I hope it is. Worst scenario, it's not. So then, you know, it's another uh, sad chapter that is just about people exploiting tragedy for their own gain instead of it becoming really a true catalyst for solutions and, um, and answers to our issues. I will be following up with more a little later about what we discussed last week about attacks on the Jewish people, but one question I do want to address right here is about why doesn't Judaism focus on self-defense, bearing weapons, and other methods of protecting ourselves? Another way someone wrote it was this. 
Why didn't Judaism ever focus on self from the second Churban until the modern state of Israel? And even then, it wasn't really a religious thing. In other words, uh, during modern-day state of Israel, of course, there's the IDF, there's the Tzahal, there's the Israeli Defense Forces, the army. So clearly, there's an entire army, which is an excellent army in protecting. But even that, this question is asking, we don't see it as a religious thing. So with that said, let me, first of all, dis- disagree. Who says we don't focus? When Yaakov Avinu prepared to meet Esau, his archenemy, he prepared three ways. He prayed, he prepared for war, and he prepared a bribe to appease him. Thank God the bribe and the appeasement and the prayer worked. He didn't need to go to war. Jews have always been prudent. We don't look at it from one perspective. We never saw war alone being, we're not warriors. War alone was not the solution. We always knew that the main Battle is a spiritual one, meaning that we have the fortitude, we stand up for our values, we don't back down. But obviously you use all measures, and the Torah talks about all kinds of halachas, when to go to war, defensive war, lachemes mitzvah, lachemes ashus, and obviously on a smaller scale, to have protection, whether it's in a community. So the, the concept, I understand it comes from a certain stereotype that includes the Jews going to the sheep, like sheep to the slaughter by the Holocaust, but the fact is, Jews are a docile people, yes. We are a peaceful people. War is for us abhorrent, but does not mean that we don't use it when necessary, as last resort. When it comes to situations like now, where Jews are under attack communities, absolutely, shuls, schools and others should have security. It doesn't have to be in a panicky way. It could be done in a more discreet way, but they should have security, they should have arms, whatever is necessary to protect innocent people. It's not just we just say till so that's, that's the most important thing to keep in mind. But to focus on the fact is that it's not just war. Often you hear that's only about arms. War, and just be, that's all you have and everything will be fine. Not correct. We look at it in a balanced way. You need to have all aspects. Just like you need to lock the door, you also put up a mezuzah. You don't do one or the other. We need to have a good, strong police presence, cameras today, and do everything possible, like I said before, to get the officials and the people in power to do something about it. Now, is this the thing we prominently display? We tell our children we're all going to bear guns and rifles and weapons? No, because firstly, we don't panic. We don't take type of that behavior that we're suddenly going to war, create a warlike attitude, even though there are those attacking us. That's not our approach. And secondly, as I said, some things have to be done more discreet. It doesn't have to always be announced in that type of fashion. Now, yes, we'd love the enemies to know that you come to our place, you are going to be in danger, not just because of spiritual reasons. So the right balance has to be met. Unfortunately, people get extreme in saying, this is the only way to do it, this is the way to do it. And when you say, when we, maybe we have to educate those children before they become haters and supremacists and whatever else, and anti-Semites. Obviously, that's long-term. That's not replacing. That's not instead of. It's together with. So you need short-term solution, long-term solution, deterrence, and preventive approaches. What to deal once a situation happens. Wise people look at the whole strategy from beginning to end and don't just focus on one thing. Whenever you see focus on one thing, it usually has an agenda. Someone's trying to sell something, trying to promote something, something about themselves. That's why we have to have wise, balanced people that are not driven by a particular lobby or particular financial gain, or particular political gain, and so on.
Since we're on the topic, I might as well do the follow-ups because it's on the topic. People, unfortunately, this is an issue that's on the table, so let's talk a little more about it. Is feeling vulnerable a lack of amuna, Rabbi, thank you for all you do to spread and to share Torah and Yiddishkeit. We are inspired and uplifted with every broadcast. My question is in regards to the recent increase in brutal crimes and anti-Semitic attacks. My husband and I, along with our Chabad rabbi and Rebetzin, are the only Torah appreciative and observant in Shomer Shabbos Yidin in our community. We know that the only response to this darkness is to increase light. We, on a daily basis, increase our Torah study, our tzedakah, our charity, our recitation of Tehillim Psalms, and try to share with non-Jews the Noahide laws, which are the moral, ethical, universal laws for all people on earth. It is, there, it is, is it therefore a lack of amuna on my part, a lack of faith on my part, if I feel overly vulnerable when walking alone with my husband to shul over a mile and a half and back home? Thank you. Absolutely not. Amuna includes, amuna means faith in God. It includes the God-given tools that he gave us, which means using your head, your mind, using your heart, using your intuition, using every tool at your disposal to make sure you're safe. Mistake is people think Amuna means not using anything. I have faith in God. I don't have to do anything. Unlock my door. God will protect me. That's part of how God protects you is by making you an intelligent human being and being wise and need be consult with others and get advice and to protect yourself in the best possible way. The key thing is, and I mentioned before, but I want to elaborate a bit more, is not to panic. We're not hysterical people. And not, not the panic meaning everything is, uh, is, uh, is, is normal. Not the panic means, because when you panic, first of all, you become weaker, and you don't think straight, and you can make mistakes. You don't want to panic, meaning you know there's a God that's protecting us. You want to think soberly, and with, have composure, and presence of mind and heart, and plan accordingly. Especially if we have families and children, we cannot panic. That's not an approach not healthy for us, it's not healthy for our children. That does not mean that we don't be, we're not prudent and we're not vigilant. There's, so there's, a, there's an in-between. Between panic and being completely complacent, there's a big, there's a wide spectrum. So we have to use everything at our disposal and it's not a lack of a munit to do whatever it takes. Now, the fact that we feel vulnerable, yes, there is, we live in a world where vulnerability is a reality. But we have to always remember that there's Hashem with us. We have trust and faith in God. And as I said, also trust and faith in the tools that God has given us. And God is Shem Yisrael. God is, does not rest and does not slumber. He's our protector. And we make every possible keli, container, for this protection to manifest in our lives. And with that, I want to say, Hashem should take help that we shouldn't have any more such incidents and we should do whatever it takes to prevent and of course prosecute to the fullest extent of the law and even further, if possible, by extending the laws, by expanding the laws, anyone that, God forbid, infringes on any person's rights in general, especially Jews and especially religious Jews for their just the mere fact that they are from. Uh, right, okay. Another person writes, the stabbing in Muncie, the guy who threatened the attack in 770, some extremists who regularly attend different synagogues or have recently been expelled from a synagogue have a common thread, mental illness. At the same time, there's an effort among shluchim to break the stigma with Shabbat together, I'm not sure what that means, break the, to break 
the stigma, and in general the conversation about mental illness. I'm wondering, I'm wondering why this isn't being spoken about. On the one hand, shouting anti-Semitism and evil, and evil with all, uh, about all these attacks can further increase stigma with regards to mental illness. At the same time, the public must be protected physically and maybe psychologically too. Is there a line between illness and evil? One who has mercy on the evil ones will eventually be evil to the ones deserving of mercy. Yet if it's an illness, is it not deserving of mercy? What is the Hasidic approach to mental illness, specifically when it's expressed in evil actions, such as the ones depicted in the news recently? Can chinuch change the expression of illness? So that if a person diagnosed with schizophrenia, for example, was raised in a home that was imbued with the Sheva Mitzvah B'nei Neach, the seven Noahid laws, with goodness and kindness, will it be less likely that his or her mental illness will his or her mental illness will express itself in evil ways? Okay, it's an interesting question, and it does cross over to a lot more top, larger topics. So let me just make it very clear here. Just because some people have mental illness does not mean that we just forgive them for shooting or killing innocent Jews, or innocent people for that matter. Yes, mental illness has to be addressed, both on the preventive and the preemptive level, as well as dealing with it once it's a case. But the fact that some of these people did attack and they have part of mental illness, why are they choosing Jews, for example? So there's more than just the mental illness. Now, in a court of law, if they find that that is the situation, they want to lock that person up into a mental psychiatric ward, that's, uh, that's, if that's proven that way, so be it. But they still have to be locked up, whether it's in a prison or in a psychiatric prison, that's up to the, 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 law, the system of law. So I just want to not confuse the two matters and conflate them. We're not going to forgive all these anti-Semitic attacks and claim that everybody's mentally ill. Number one, it's not true. Many, many are not mentally ill. And just because they hate doesn't make them mentally ill. They may have other illnesses, psychological or emotional, but it's not necessarily clinical ones. It's hatred that needs to be addressed. It can't be tolerated in our society. Even those that have mental illness, yes, of course, we have to understand that. And when you look at the situation, you diagnose it and then address it it, um, appropriately. So I don't want to mix the two because right now we're dealing with the issue of these attacks and many of them have nothing to do with mental illness. But yes, you're correct. Mental illness is one of the issues that needs to be addressed in general, not just wait for attacks, because unfortunately it can make us a, uh, it can add to the equation when a person has some mental illness and has prejudices and reads something about some hate mail or some hate to social media. Obviously that can push that person over and go on attack. So I think we have to look at everything. And um, I have spoken in the past about mental illness. It's not really the scope of this conversation, so I'll suffice with that. Let's go back to some new interesting topics. And this is completely moving over to a very different topic. What is Chabad's position on Daf Yemi and the Siyum Hashas? So Daf Yemi was instituted in the 20s. Rabbi Meir Shapiro had a tremendous idea. The idea was that Jews... Everywhere begin studying one daf a day. And that way you have like a collective study. And then um, every seven and a half years, he did a sima shas. This just this past week was a sima shas of over 90, 100,000 people in MetLife Stadium and Barclays Stadium. And uh, so it was a Kiddush Hashem, Jews coming together due to learning Torah, making a siyum. A sima shas is a simcha. So... Number one, without even going into any details, that alone is a simcha for all Jews. And yes, if you're by a sima shas, whether it's a chabat shul or not a chabat shul, it's a simcha, it's a sudas mitzvah. 
and therefore we all celebrate together. That being said, there is the issue Daf Yemi itself, is this a Chabad custom, is it not a Chabad custom? So we have from the Rabbeim, we have the following. When it was first instituted, there were those that were for it, there were those that were not for it. Some said not for it, it was not because they were against learning, God forbid, but because they thought it would be more superficial type of learning. Some said prokim prokim, meaning you just learn one page, you could be stuck right in the middle, at the end of the day, you're just in the middle of a topic. But as time passed, more and more people embraced it. The Friedrich Rebbe, the Rebbe speaks in the Sikh Shlach Memches, Tavshem Memches, did not encourage his students to do it, which does not mean he negated it either. He just did not encourage it. In other words, it's not a takon of a Rebbe like for example, Chitas or Rambam. Then the Rebbe spoke about Rambam being something that it unites all the people because of the entire Torah and other reasons as we come closer to the Gula in that Shlach Sicha. In different various places you have from the Rebbe that even though it may not have been a Takone of Chabad, but the Rebbe actually encourages different groups of learning to learn it and to assume, even a Siyam of Vashas based on Daf Yemi. And overall, let's just make it clear, Chabad is one thing with Torah. And Teda is one thing with Chabad. When you see someone learn, it's a simcha. Whether it's that minig, different people have different minhagim. Some people, for example, learn not dafyemi, they have other shiurim. Not a, not a pashta. Meaning each one has their path. And they're all positive things because they're learning Teda. So I spoke about this in episode 238 because the question there was, what about Chabad, um, what about someone learning dafyemi? Should that be negated? Some people criticized it. So if someone's learning Teda, General, how could you criticize learning Teda? You're suggesting they should learn Rambam or something else instead? They maybe can learn both if they want to. So the negating, the idea of negating something in learning is completely unacceptable. Um, and the Rebbe never negated. On the contrary, as I said, different shirim that Rebbe was told about. Did he institute it? Is this something, this is an institute, is a takon of a Rebbe? As I said, no. But that doesn't take away from the fact that even if a hundred people did Daf Yemi, Especially when you have a kahilik dela, so many th- thousands, tens of thousands, hundreds of thousands of people learning on a daily basis in, in offices, in shuls, on planes, in, uh, on trains, and so on. That's obviously a great, tremendous Kiddush Hashem, and we celebrate and honor it. So it goes into the gallery, not a, not a pasta, different customs. Some of them have spread more, some have spread less, and each has their legitimacy in their way. When a Rebbe makes a takon, obviously it has a whole different type of import and, and impact and the purpose. It's a different story, but it's not, it's, you don't compare the two. One does not negate the other. So in, ask, in answering the specific questions now, with that being said, and again, I refer you to episode 238, there I actually quoted all the sikhs. I believe Rei Tov Shemem Beis, the Rebbe spoke about it, Shlach Memches, and some of the letters the Rebbe wrote to different people who have groups who are studying or teaching and make Nasium. So go there for actual sources, no need to go over those sources. So here are the specific questions. What was the Rebbe's position on Dafa Yemi? I already answered that. And is it okay for Lubavitch to go to the Siyam Hashas next month? Okay, this was a question written last month, next month. Or is it better to stay home and learn the Rebbe's Tero of Fabreng? It's on Erev Hei Tevis. My answer to that is a person has to make that decision on their own. To going to the Shas is nothing wrong with the going to it and celebrating with Eden and learning a Teda. If you feel that it's better for you to stay home and learn the Rebbe's Teda or whatever Teda, that's a personal decision. If you're doing nothing, definitely better than nothing is to go.
But if you have something, you have a kfiyas, let's say you're learning with someone, let's say it's pekuach nefesh. Obviously, these are priorities that a person has to make case by case. And I don't think there's a black and white answer to that. The Sima Shas is coming up in a few weeks, and hundreds of thousands of Jews will be celebrating this event, but Chabad doesn't seem to participate. Officially, participation, that's the Rebbe makes that policy. But there are many Chabad people that did participate, and there's nothing fundamentally wrong with that. So official Chabad, only the Rebbe would. Would the Rebbe participate? He didn't participate in previous Yom Yashas, but he didn't participate in many beautiful, great events. So that doesn't indicate anything. Why is that? And what was the Rebbe's position about the Siyam Ashas? So I believe I explained that already. Um, isn't it a beautiful thing that Claudius saw does together? Yes, the Rebbe encouraged learning Torah at every opportunity. However, the Rebbe rarely encouraged learning Dafayemi. Why, why, why is that? The Rebbe followed the Friedrich Rebbe. Since the Friedrich Rebbe was of the opinion that there were questions whether this is the way it should be done, never come out against it. And as I said, he did encourage groups. But it's not so called. The Rebbe, many things that the Rebbe did not necessarily advocate didn't mean he was against it. It was simply a question of what the priorities were. Okay, and again, episode 238 for more information. But above all, I want to say this. Whenever you hear anyone becoming too radical and too extreme, in something, for something, or against something, you have to always go back to the sources. If a Rebbe, if our Rebbe, would say something, that absolutely not to do something, obviously there's no question. If he says absolutely do something, then again there's no question. Though the gray areas of things that are not stated absolutely yes, and not, 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 not called Rishus, there, consult a Mashpia, consult several Mashpiyim to see. If it's a Dovashe Bigdusha like learning, and I mean this across the board in any scenario, not just Daf Yemi. Then you can imagine it's a positive thing. The question is whether you should be doing it, whether how should you prioritize your time, if you have different shiurim, different options. That needs to be discussed case by case. If it's something that seems to be a negative thing, even if you didn't hear you're not supposed to do it, especially with consultation with an objective party, it could be something you should stay away from. But I think if you have a balanced approach that is a teda, and not resort to kanois, which is zealotry, a type of extreme radicalism, unless, again, something that absolutely, even then, even the things that Rebbe said you must do, he also said, in a calm way, in a peaceful way, in a respectful way, not in a condescending way, not in a judgmental way. That goes without saying. But the truth is, I should say, that doesn't go without saying. Sometimes it has to be said. And that's even when it's mamish, this is a directive. It has to be done always in a beautiful and pleasant manner. Especially something that is not necessarily a directive, but it's not anti-directive either, meaning it's not, nothing against it. That's a general attitude in general. It brings to mind when the Friedrich Rebbe has it over, repeated a number of times. He once told the Friedrich Rebbe that he was in a shul in Paris, I believe in France, and he gave somebody charity, or he gave charity at night. Someone came over and reprimanded the Rebbe because, look, you don't give at night. That is, I'll talk about it. So he told the Friedrich Rebbe, and the Friedrich Rebbe said, That person who criticizes you probably doesn't give charity by day either. Because the fact is he's focusing on the negative, so maybe he doesn't give by day. It's not like he's really so, he's so adamant about Zdokia and not giving a night, all other areas as well. But the Friedrich Rebbe sends that. So you have to be careful when you tell somebody, even if they're doing something, maybe whatever reasons should be done at a different time, but they're, giving, they're helping somebody, you have to be careful how to criticize something like that. And critique often of such things, even if it has some basis, always in, can be an indicator of other issues going on as well. Okay, next question. 
Should a parent let her child eat OUD? OUD and kosher standards for children. What, what's OUD? OU, of course, is a hashgacha from the Orthodox Union. There are other hashgachas. And sometimes it says a D right near it, which means it's dairy. And dairy most often is chalavakum. Well, most often, not only, always, unless it says chalav Yisrael. So the question is, it's kosher, but it's chalavakum. How about if it really matters to the son to be able to eat OUD? That means the son really wants to eat it. How about if the father is okay with the child eating things that aren't chalav Yisrael, but the mother isn't? Should parents interfere with what the child eats if the food is kosher, but not up to their kosher standards? So a very good question. Firstly, I've addressed this issue um, in the past, and I want to just give you the, uh, the episodes 108, 110, 112, 271, and 272. So this is a broader question. This isn't just about OU hashgacha, obviously. This is about education of your children. Now, generally speaking, parents would love their children to live up to the highest standards, even higher than their own standards. But again, as I said before, the way you teach it has to always be with love and pleasantness. Because if you don't do it with that way, you give, leave a bad taste in your children's mouth, no pun intended, and it will not help them maintain that standard. They'll just see it as something that was just an imposition and uncomfortable, and as soon as they can rebel, they will rebel. But talk, let's talk about the general picture. Parents, like in all areas, should be teaching their children all the highest standards in a beautiful, loving, kind, nurturing personal way. So the children should embrace it like something I really want to do. And this is whether it's eating kosher and eating chav Yisrael or other standards and other matters, whether it's an egelvasa at the bed or it's a tzitzis at night or the yarmulke and all kinds of things that become relevant. It's not just this matter. Now what means the highest standards? Listen, this is something based on a parent's education. They could have a mashpia and ask. You don't have to go crazy about it. But we want to live up to the standards. Now, if a child is already now of age where they are challenging or they say, no, I want to eat something that you, that you may not have that standard. So here too you have to cha- choose by case by case. Pesach is a big issue like this. Some parents have strict standards and their children are not so strict. You have to be careful not to burn bridges and not to create just ir- irritation and tension for unnecessary reasons. This doesn't mean you have to compromise. You have to take it case by case, try to see what can be done to make things a little more peaceful. And the same is true with the Chal Yisrael and other matters like that. For, for Chabadnik, and essentially people who are familiar with the sources, Chal Yisrael is not just a matter of who's watching it. Today it's become also a matter, it's written clearly that's connected to Yiddish Shemayim and other factors. So is it equivalent to eating treif? No, it's not. But it still is metamtim. It does have an effect on a person's spirit and soul. So you want to, of course, avoid that as much as possible. Now, if a child insists or they're, they're hiding or they're lying about it, that, that's already an issue of how to deal with children who are not living up to your expectations. And this is the same thing with smartphones or other issues. It's not just a matter of kosher. And that's something, as I said, requires more looking into. It's hard to give directives here. They should all, however, be with love, even when you have standards. And when it comes with love in a kind way, it's much easier to get what you want than if it goes into a battle. Chol um, Yisrael is definitely a standard. It's not it's just a small matter. But you have to make those choices. Now, if parents disagree, that's another issue that needs to be addressed between the parents. What do we present to the children? You don't want to have mixed messages where the children are confused. So that's something loving parents, if you have a good relationship with your spouse, you should be able to discuss that before 
presenting to the children, so they see a united stand. Should parents interfere? This goes back sometimes yes, sometimes no. Depends on the age of the child, the temperament of the child, how they'll react. If their reaction will be one that will make things worse or not. And, and that's, at the end of the day, that needs to all be taken into account. Okay. And I've given the episodes where some of this was discussed. Many other episodes where I talked about how parents should deal with children and what, how far to push and how do you discipline. So please, you have to see, sir, that's not the topic right here, even though it's directly related. Please search on chsidasupply.com, parents, children, attitude, education, and you'll have plenty of material of addressing that as well. But we have to try to keep things rolling here because I can't cover everything in the full extensive way. That's why I'm doing the cross-referencing. Dress. Next question, dress. What is the two questions, in, two parts to this question? About what, is this, what, the, what is the significance of wearing a black hat? And second, is it okay for a Hasidic person to wear jeans? So in episode 90, I spoke about dress, the significance of dress. Because on one hand, you can say dress is some external thing. Who really cares? As long as a person's heart and soul and mind is in the right place. And their machshava dibur and thought, speech, and action. So dress is somewhat superficial. And yet we see, in the, even in the physical secular world, Lahavdil, you see baseball uniforms, you see army uniforms, you see people identify when they dress a certain way with certain groups. Is it external? It's an external, but it's still a symbolic element. When it comes to Yiddishkeit, we also, there's a uniform. There's Shabbos clothing, there's weekday clothing, there's Tzniyaz Dika clothing. So there are customs. Now, if a person only focus on dress and nothing else, that's a Chetzenius. Some people focus only on the inside and no dress at all. That's also, you want to have a balance between the two. That the inner should be reflected in the outer, and the outer should reflect the inner. So it's not about worshipping the clothing themselves. The Rebbe once told somebody, they saw the Rebbe before the Nasius studying, learning something on Shabbos, I'm sorry, on Friday, and the Rebbe was not wearing a jacket. So he, like, he was a very charedish boy, and he told the Rebbe, You're wearing a jacket, it's learning. And the Rebbe said, the most important thing is to know what's under the jacket. And this person later told, years later, that he had many problems under his jacket, without getting into details. This does not mean, but you see the Rebbe dressed like a Rebbe. So everything in its time, in its place, we're not talking about anything that is not appropriate. So yes, garments, including a thing like a black hat. Is there something about a black hat that makes it holy? No, it became a mini Yisrael to wear it. In Chabad, that's what the Rebbe wore. And therefore others wore. If you look in the earlier years, the Rebbe himself wore color hats, gray or other colors, and Chassidim did. But as the standard changed, standards make a difference. Not because we worship the standard, because, as, of course, many people say, all you care about is how you look and how you dress, and what about everything else? You're behaving like an obnoxious person, and, but you're wearing a black hat. That's a very legitimate taina. But that doesn't mean that black hat has no value. It's just a matter of balance. If it's only a black hat and everything else about the person is, is antithetical to that, it's a serious problem. So many people are chitzenim, are externals, and everything is about externals. But we're not talking about that. We're not making externals an end, as an end in itself. It's part of a whole picture. You stand respectably before before God, before a Rebbe, in a shul. There's a respectability, and clothing is part of it. Dressing appropriately, dressing cleanly. And yes, addressing fittingly to the community standards. 
However, I'm not going to go say that if a person wears a little different, we have to go now and attack. It's not appropriate either because, as I said earlier, it all depends what kind of impact you're going to have. And I've seen that, unfortunately, in my own yeshiva years, and I've seen it later, people attacking people just for their dress, and they don't get through because they're not really coming from a pneumistic place or a loving place, and they themselves may be just obnoxious people and all they're talking about is dress. That's why it has to be in this balanced way. The black hat does not have an end itself. If the Rebbe had chosen a brown hat and that would have been the standard, that would have been. Yes, black has a certain kedusha to it, black and white related to Shabbos. Some people wear big day shochas, some people wear big day loven, some people wear white, all white on Shabbos, some wear black, black and white. So there's more Kabbalistic meanings behind it and uh, that uh, there's the okum and there's the shochas, but that's not for right here, this discussion. As far as genes go, generally speaking, genes is considered to be not a Hasidic or religious garb. Now, many people wear jeans, and I'm not here to criticize them. But yeah, as the standard, that's the standard. It's more of a casual and more of a, I would even say, secular dress. Is it usr? Is it forbidden? I wouldn't call it prohibited. But again, everybody has to make their choices. I'm not here to criticize. I'm not here to judge. So you have to look at it if you want to know the facts. Look at what the standards are. And that's not just applied to this type of pants. It's to other types of clothing as well. Okay. Next question. Birth and death. If on someone's birthday it's said that they were born because the world could not exist without them, then when, when someone dies, is that God's way of saying it can't? Meaning the world can't exist without them? What does the statement really mean? Now, <laughs> not to toot my horn here, but these, this quote is attributed to myself, to yours truly, in Torah Meaningful Life. In the chapter on birth, I translated into English an expression that the Rebbe would use very often, that every Jew is every person, every Jew every is a special person, and God is proud of him. And the expression is, birth is God saying, you matter. That has evolved into a statement that when you, birth is God saying the world cannot exist without you. Now it's all true. Because if God sent you here, you have an indispensable mission and calling to fulfill that no one but you can fulfill. So regardless of where the expression comes from, so there's another discussion, and it's based, of course, on the Rebbe Sichas that I mentioned, uh, very often, you are my handiwork, you are my uh, product that I am proud of. That, and of course, the Rebbe's words, that each person sent to this world is sent for a unique purpose. What you can accomplish, or you and only you can accomplish. Because God does not send two of the same. Sometimes the Rebbe expressed himself and said, what you can accomplish, even Moshe Rabbeinu, even all those from the beginning of time and to the end of time cannot do but you. That's your job. So that definitely describes a type of inherent and indispensable value. So the question I was asking, so does that mean when a person dies, that value comes to an end? Obviously not. Birth means the soul was sent to this earth. The soul existed long before it came to this earth. The mission begins now. Your time has come now. Your stage in life. You're carrying now the baton during your lifetime. Now every good deed you do lives on forever. So you've fulfilled your mission. If you fulfilled the mission in your lifetime. So it's not like now the world doesn't need you anymore. You've done what you had to do and it changed the world forever. So in a sense you're now a permanent component. A permanent part of existence forever, because you've done your part. The fact that you physically die, God forbid, someone dies, doesn't mean the mission is no longer that the world does not need you. 
Because you finished your job. Now, if someone did not finish the job, we know they come back to finish it. Or it'll be finished some other way. So once we are, the soul is always here. Always has a purpose. When it comes to this world, that purpose is now activated. And now it's activated. And whatever happens, and we hope that you do part of your mission or all of it, and then, yes, that lives on. Death is not, oh, that the vote of, that you, you had your vote of confidence when you were born, and death is like a vote of no confidence or saying, no, you're not worth anything anymore. God forbid. It's your, your role has finished. So now, someone else continues. And remember, we all supplement and complement each other. Okay. Next question. Isn't it about time that we create a powerful program, powerful programs, rather, to teach people about Mashiach? Without even reading further, I can tell you absolutely yes. But let's read the question. As we all know, the Rebbe said that the direct path, quote-unquote, to Geula, is through learning about Mashiach and Geula. For whatever reason, the talk of 1991-1992, the talks of, have been put to the side for many years by some. I feel it is about time that we begin to learn and teach these talks in depth. Would you be willing to give classes on these talks and give practical applications from those talks? I'm not going to read the next line. It's a compliment to me. But as a scholar of our times, I feel it would be best taught by you, and this would teach the most, most people. The goal is just too long. We need to bring Mashiach. A second questioner asks, asks, why is there silence about Mashiach? I don't get it. If the Rebbe clearly said, Achayis Sada Tavshinun Beis, 5752, that the Shluchim need to take Achlotis resolutions and Shturim, make a fuss about Mashiach, how come there's such a striking silence about Mashiach? This past Shabbos, Ashliach said over some points on the, of the above-mentioned talk, but failed to even mention once about Mashiach. In a way, I can relate to the frustration of those Shluchim that make a breakaway kinus. Okay. Now, so firstly, see episodes 722 and 238, where I talked about this somewhat. That's something, one of my pet peeves. I don't know if that's the right word, but definitely an important, important topic because this is the unfinished business that the Rebbe gave us that he announced 70 years ago. Well, I'd say 69 years ago. Tovshin Yudalaf, when the Rebbe assumed leadership, that this is the Deirashvi, the seventh generation that will bring the Shekhinah down below, and said, This is our job. Whether we chose it, even if whether it's not, whether it's not up to our choice, not up to our aveda, even may, we may not even want it in some ways. That's our mission. And then later in Tafshin Allah, forty years later, the Rebbe said the words, "I did everything I can. Now you do what you can." Put him Tafshin Memzayin. A few years earlier, the Rebbe spoke about that at length as well. So this clearly, this is our final mission. Now this is this is of course the culmination of everything. In history, all the Tehra Mitzvahs, all the Aveda, all the service, the culmination is to bring the Geula, as the Rebbe made so aptly clear time and again. And he said, now you have to do what you can. So yes, this thing is about time that we do a major revolution in the teaching and learning of Geula Mashiach, as the Rebbe said, that's the Rebbe's directive. What does that mean? Because you can't appreciate something. You definitely can't yearn for it. You can't live it if you don't know what it is. So the first thing you need to study is the product, so to speak. You have to understand what it is. That way you can become passionate about it. That way you can share. So the first step is learning about it. And learning, as the Rebbe explains, is not just learning about it. Learning itself is the process of bringing a Mashiach because a Mashiach is consciousness, a Mashiach awareness, and ultimately actions that live up to that awareness and consciousness.
So 100% agreement and beyond an agreement, yes, I am ready to do what my part, but I think we need to have also a team effort and create a groundswell that touches the entire world, a critical mass. There's absolutely no limits. It's just a matter of how to teach it and what language to be used. I'm not going to now go on to explain why there's silence, why some people don't. There's many reasons. Some are not necessarily healthy reasons. Some are not necessarily Torah reasons. It could be political and so on. But I will give everybody the benefit of the doubt. The biggest reason is because people are not aware of what it is, which means we're not learning it properly. It's an abstract idea. Just leave you with this question. What would Gula Mashiach, what will the world look like tomorrow morning if Mashiach comes tonight or tomorrow morning? What will your city, your town, your house, your street, your workplace look like? What will happen? That question can be answered by learning about it. And when you learn about it, then you can learn how to make your home, your street, your community, your city, your state, wherever you may be, a Mashiach Dika environment that becomes a keli, a channel to actually bring the Gula. And each of us has a role to play in this part. So, of course, the next question is, so what do you do? How do we begin? Well, we begin by talking about it and making a big tumult. And hopefully in the next weeks, as we prepare for the 70th anniversary of Yud Shvat, Tov Shin Yud, 70th year Tov Shin Pei, we really turn over ourselves and the world into pioneering, exciting, passionate programs, all based on Teir Chesidus, but in ways that make people relate to it. They feel it's relevant to me. There's something I can do about it. Okay, if you have any thoughts and ideas, please, by all means, bring them up, send, submit them, and we will be happy to address them. I will use this platform to the fullest extent, my fullest, the fullest possible extent, and trying to awake myself, awake everyone possible, and hopefully this can be a ripple effect that we all awake each other and finally do what's necessary to our part. And the Eberstein and the Rebbe will do their part once we do ours. Hopefully we don't have to wait for that, ours, but uh, so far it seems to be that's what the Rebbe said we should do and that's what we need to do. Okay. With that, let us go to the Chassidus question. Chassidus question is like this. Yehuda and Yosef. Hi, Rabbi Jacobson. I appreciate your program very much. I was learning Torah Eir, this is of, yes, of yesterday, Shabbos Vayigash, and there is something that seems to me different than, than the way it's explained elsewhere. He explained that Yehuda is Malchus, which is lower nowadays, and Yosef is Yisod, which is higher. Yeah, Yosef is Mashpia, Mashbir Bor, he's a transmitter, a source of sustenance, and Yehuda, from the word Heidah, acknowledging is a Makabal, a recipient. Therefore, Yehuda is the one who needs to come close to Yosef, a Yikash, a love Yehuda. Yehuda came close to Yosef. The Makabal comes to the Mashpia. But when Mashiach will come, it will be revealed the superiority of Malchus. And therefore Yehuda will be higher. And Yosef will come to Yehuda, which is like the Haftarah that we said yesterday talks about. David Avdi Nosi Le'elam. Isn't it explained that Yosef is, is the one who was able to be involved and descend in the world unlike the rest of the brothers? Doesn't explain that Yosef is the one that was the one that was able to bring it down to Biyah. And I'll explain that in a moment. So, the, seemingly, the questioner seems a, sees a contradiction. I'll try to explain what he sees, but there's no real contradiction when we, get, when we understand the topic. So what does Chassidus say? That all the others, all the patriarchs, they were shepherds. Intentionally. Because they were, that way they could not be involved in the hoo-ha of the marketplace, of the stock market of the times. 
and they could peacefully, as the sheep peacefully graze, they can meditate and pray and contemplate and study and commune with God. Yosef was the first one that was thrust against his will into a whole different environment. He also began as a shepherd, but once he was sold into slavery and came down to Egypt, and he became an accountant, as the Targum translates, which means he's the first Jewish accountant, essentially. And then when he is, interprets Pharaoh's dreams and he's appointed to be Mishnah Lamelech, the second in command, what happens? Now he becomes a major businessman. He was in, singly in charge of, of turning, singly responsible to turning Egypt into a superpower by trading in the grain, by stocking it up, selling it when the great famine broke. This was Emerus, no longer shepherd. No longer, he's right part in Erevis Saudits, in this very materialistic and pagan country. He became the leader, the business leader, the, the leader, the leading mind and strategist and so on. And yet, Chassidus explains, he maintained his spiritual integrity. As we know, when he met Yaakov, one of the signs he gave to him is that Egla Rufi sent wagons that was the last sugi they learned in Gemara together. And Yesuf maintained his connection, that even when he was, the language of says in Biyah, Bri Yitzir Asi, he maintained the integrity of Atzillus. The Ovis never went to Biyah. Yes, they were occupied with the world to some extent, but their major thing was in Kedusha. And they were isolated, insulated. And Yesuf entered and still maintained, which is a bigger Chiddush, compared sometimes to Tfilis Mincha, that middle of the day you tear yourself away to, to pray. Middle of the workday. Mayruv, the evening prayer and the morning prayer are in the morning before work and after work. But that tearing away, that's the chiddush. That even in the material world you maintain and completely, complete, maintain and completely preserve your spiritual integrity. So the questioner is asking that that would make Yasef the one that goes into Biyah. Here we say that Yehuda is Malchus. Malchus is usually seen as the one that goes in Biyah. I assume that's what he's asking. So today, Yosef is the Mashpia, and Yehuda has to receive from him. When Mashiach comes, Yehuda will be the Mashpia, because Malchus will elevate to its proper place, and Yosef will come to him. So how is that shim with Yosef being Mashpia? So firstly, the first answer is very clear. Yosef is Mashpia today. Mashbir bor. Yisod is Mashpia. Mashpia to Malchus and Mashpia to Biyah. He's the one that provides the sustenance. So there's no contradiction there. L'osad lovei, Yosef will still be a mashpia. He'll still have that element. But Malchus will have something to give that, that even Yosef doesn't have. Because once Malchus elevates to its prominent place, which is to the etzem, Yosef will need that. But that doesn't take away and negate that Yosef will not continue to transmit. He'll transmit in general. But obviously his main, his main transmission, his main, his main, uh, the main transmission will be coming from Yehuda, who in turn will transmit to everyone. And Yosef will do his transmission through his way through the Yasef way. But Yehuda will then be, the Etzem will be mashpia into the, the Mechabah will be mashpia like in the cave to save of Gover, Eishas Chayla Teres Baila. That doesn't mean the Baal won't have any role to play. Obviously he'll have a role to play. But then he'll be receiving from the Etzem, from the core essence, which only Malchus can touch. So I don't really see a contradiction. If I misunderstood the questioner, please correct me and um, I'll be happy to address it further. What it comes down in our practical lives is that Yosef is Talmud. Yehuda is Maise. Talmud, God Maise. Today we need Talmud because the only way to know what to do is by receiving what the Torah tells us. So Yehuda receives direction from Torah. When Mashiach comes, it will be Maise Godel. We'll be able to sense internally what needs to be done.
And Tater will not be the, we don't need to open a Tater to know what needs to be done or what not to be done. Tater then will serve a different role. Yachid Yechudim, as the Alter Rebbe explains at the end of section 26 in the Geras HaKedish. So that is the, the lesson to us. The power, we each need each other. You need the mashpi, you need the makabal, but then the makabal has something that once the world is saturated with the divine, it itself will tell all levels what needs to be done. It does not need to receive it from the mashpia. Okay. Let's do the essays. There are three essays as we've been doing. The essays, essay number one is Happiness by Joshua Goldhirsch, age 45, Melbourne, Australia. It begins by quoting Dennis Prager, the well-known American radio host, has written a book entitled Happiness is a Serious Problem. And in it, as well as on his radio show, that ha- the Happiness Hour, he contends that we have a moral obligation to our family, friends, and community to act happy and behave like we are happy, even if we may not feel happy. The obvious question is, can a person just be happy? Given that happiness is an emotion, what if you don't feel happy? goes on to say, this essay will demonstrate that by implementing the Hasidic approach to happiness in Hebrew simcha, then you can truly be and feel happy and not just act happy, no matter what the challenge or circumstance. goes on to discuss what happiness is, quoting from the Alter Rebbe and Ageras HaKedish, and different, different Maimorim, connecting Simcha to Bittl, that you need the humility, and that is the key element to it. A, a, a powerful essay, short and sweet, to the point, the combination of Simcha, not out of arrogance, but out of humility, is the key. Great. Next essay is Challenging Reality. This is by Hanala Shusterman, age 19, Chicago, Illinois, student, Lubavitch Girls High School, Chicago. She writes, This world is a world full of challenges. We see a reality in which people encounter challenges daily. Every person has their way of dealing with the challenges and negativity they see. This essay will examine the creation of the world through the lens of Chassidus in order to discover one of the godly tools used to approach and totally eradicate challenges. And this information will be compared to bestseller Emotional Agility by Susan David. Okay. And yes, and the essay goes on to describe first defining reality, agility and rigidity, why change, confirmation bias, creating a new reality, and then actual steps of intercept and accept, switch the scene, fighting nature, make a change, and then changing our challenges. Negativity versus positivity versus godly. Well annotated, well done, quite comprehensive, and well worth reading. Thank you. And finally, for tonight, Joy Rifki Cohen, age 20, Manchester, England, student, OYY, Lubavitch Girls School, Manchester. I assume Elias Yitzchak, maybe not. She writes, I chose the topic of Simcha because I saw how it personally affected my life and changed the way I dealt with different hard situations. I based my essay on the verse King David writes in the book of Psalms, serve God with joy, come before him with jubilation. And goes on to discuss the mission of life from a Hasidic point of view, using that verse as an anchor and um, explaining the difference between Sassan and Simcha, which is joy and jubilation, internal joy and external joy. And um, well done, very comprehensive. I found it to be very illuminating. And thank you again for this uh, essay, as well as the other essays, concluding with the Tzamech Tzedek, Think Good Will Be Good, which of course is a fundamental principle in all of Chassidus. 
And with that, these three essays are all now posted on our site, just posted at chassidusapplied.com. These essays are posted as we go each week, as we continue down in the order they were, in the marks, in the order of the marks they received these essays. And we are preparing and excited to prepare the next year's essay contest, which you'll be hearing about shortly. You can begin writing, frankly, because there's no time, there's no deadline. And when you begin, there's only a deadline when it has to be submitted. So the guidelines will be similar, if not exactly the same. So you can begin writing your essay. And um, with that, I want to conclude by wishing everybody a very pleasant and simchadika week. A week of Yohavchiyom Mel L'Sasun L'Simcha L'Moyedim Tevim that any challenge, any setback should be turned into even greater light. This has been My Life Chassidus Applied, episode 290. We're here every Sunday night, 8 to 9 p.m. Always welcoming your questions and always an honor to interact. And thank you for allowing me into your lives. And hopefully you will also initiate and write questions and uh, feedback of all sorts. Thank you very much.